Do you ever feel like you're always on? What do you do when you need a moment to chill? How do you like to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next? These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle all the time. With working from home and trying to stay in touch with friends and family, a million pressing social issues, and an expectation to always be on 24-7. Sometimes you just need a moment to turn off and hit reset. That's when you reach for Coors Light. It's made to chill. My moment to chill is watching baseball, especially when the White Sox are on. I like to have a Coors Light beside me. It's a great beer to have watching the games as it's cool and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. And even the mountains on my cans turn blue telling me that it's time to hit reset. Sit back, relax, and hunker down for an evening of White Sox baseball. So when it's time for you to unwind, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light and the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Must be 21 years or older to enjoy. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And as always, celebrate responsibly. When your entire life is online, you need more than just speed from your internet. Xfinity gives you reliable in-home Wi-Fi coverage, plus protection from Wi-Fi network threats. Check out our amazing offers on Xfinity Internet. You'll get fast speed and Wi-Fi coverage you can count on. Plus, get advanced security free with the XFi Gateway, so you can keep the connected devices in your home protected from network threats. Just log in and activate through the Xfinity app. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to Sox Machine Live. I am Josh Nelson, and we have a full house here, folks. Alongside me is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com. It's Jim Margulis. Hello, Jim. Howdy. And joining us for the first time, a new addition for us on the Sox Machine podcast and Sox Machine Live and upcoming White Sox wake-up calls. We're very excited for him to join the team for the 2021 season. You know him very well. If you're part of White Sox Twitter, you could follow him at the Bennett K. It's Bennett Carroll. And Bennett, thanks for joining the team and, and the show. Oh, thank you for having me. It is an honor to be here. <laughs> I think the honor is also ours. All right. I'm so trying to think of another Bennett K. We have the Bennett K. I'm trying to think if there are any impersonators. At, at Bennett has me blocked because I've been trying to get his handle for years. So <laughs> I, I got as close as I could without getting it. Flew too close to the sun. I tried. You know who also has that problem is Penals. <laughs> he has been trying for years to get like the original Patrick Nolan. Or I think the original P Knowles Twitter handle, and he has he's never been able to get it. But yeah, I had the problem. On, few. Go ahead, I had please. the problem on uh, Instagram with original socks machine until I realized that I had that account for years. <laughs> and it was an <laughs> uh, email account that stopped forwarding to my Gmail account. So just the times I tried to get the password retrieval uh, didn't happen. So I just completely forgot that I'd already grabbed it. So I have it, just haven't done anything with it yet. Well, we are excited to have you on, Bennett. And as far as this episode for Sox Machine Live, we will be previewing the upcoming series as the Chicago White Sox 
head east as they have a four-game series, a unique four-game series in Boston in which they will be participating in Patriots Day. That is going to be a 10 o'clock in the morning baseball game on Monday for the Chicago White Sox. So make sure you got your Sox machine coffee mug filled and drink some coffee as you watch the first pitch. It's one of the earliest starts that I can remember. Uh, for the Chicago White Sox. We'll recap the series against the Cleveland Indians as the White Sox and Indians split those four games. And currently the Chicago White Sox right now are six and seven to start the 2021 season. It is not ideal as far as the overall start for the Chicago White Sox. But we start this episode with one of the biggest storylines and maybe one of the biggest storylines going for the entire 2021 season. And that's Carlos Rodon's no-hitter. And Jim, you wrote about it, and I chat about it as far as the White Sox wake-up call. I had the honor uh, to actually be at the game, uh, which is pretty awesome. But one thing that you wrote about the Carlos Rodon no-hitter in the column today on Sox Machine that I really enjoyed is that when we spoke about Rodon during the offseason, we thought he was toast. And he really didn't give us any other reason to think he wasn't toast based on his last two outings in Cleveland that may have cost the White Sox the American League Central Division and what happened in Oakland where he couldn't get anyone out and the lead evaporated and the White Sox season is over. And he gets non-tendered. He comes back on a $3 million contract. We don't think it's very inspiring. Ethan Katz says that he's got to fix his entire lower half. I've got a strategy for it. Okay, uh, you're asking someone that's never changed their pitching motion since high school. We'll see how this goes. And after his start in Seattle and what took place against Cleveland on April 14th, that was the best start, obviously, of Carlos Rodon's professional career, throwing this no-hitter. The fastball velocity is hitting, reaching new heights that we haven't seen in the past five years. And I, at the end of your column, you raised the question of, or I should say the topic, uh, we don't know what to expect from Carlos Rodon moving forward. How do you feel now about Carlos Rodon with what is his start to 2021? Well, you refresh my memory in that we were talking about Rodon when he came back and we were reading the uh... – I think it was during spring training, the article from Daryl Van Scout, I think, talking about all the things Ethan Katz wanted him to do. And when you were talking about it, uh, we said, like, that sounds like a lot. (laughs) It sounds like a lot for a pitcher who has never worked with the pitching coach to just kind of show up to spring training and uh, redo his entire delivery. And it's not a guarantee that will even address the biggest issue with him, which is staying healthy, uh, much less everything else he had, the command issues, the velocity issues, the uh, life issues on his fastball when he got velocity, he didn't have a life on it. He wasn't able to locate it. So it just felt like a lot. And sure enough, at least, you know, spring training and two starts in the regular season, he's basically done all that as far as we can tell, like it's worked, you know, who knows whether it'll stay or whether it'll kind of come and go ebb and flow, et cetera, but it's good. <laughs> it's fine. It's surprisingly uh, straightforward and to the point. And it's, uh, you know, it makes me wonder, you know, I guess like if you think about it a little bit too much and if you're looking to be dissatisfied, <laughs> you can wonder like, why didn't Don Cooper or any of the other White Sox <laughs> pitching apparatus like figure this out in all the years they're wrestling with them? Uh, but if you don't want to be 
uh, if you don't want to somehow twist this until all of a sudden you're uh, upset again, <laughs> I would just say like, hey, it's great that he somehow knocked it all out in, in one spring and go from there. But yeah, it's it's uh, now I think it's a matter of, you know, whether he can stay healthy, because I think with fastball command, with the life he's showing and the slider he has with the way the improved fastball makes the changeup play up a little bit more. Mm-hmm. the pitches work and the the movement works the profiles work like there's nothing wrong with what he's throwing it's just a matter of whether he can throw it on a regular basis and uh that's really the missing piece but i think that's a lot better than he was when we didn't know whether any of the changes would work whether any of his pitches would come along and then on top of that the health issue i'd rather just be about health and we can just take it start to start and and you know i guess not have to hold our breath uh you know as the starts pile up but I think on Twitter, you posed that question on how many pitchers could have used a different pitching coach or if Ethan Cass was hired sooner, how many pitchers he could have possibly saved for the White Sox, uh, which I, I found humorous, but it is a good point. And, and Jim raises the question as well. Why haven't the White Sox done this earlier? And, you know, one of the things that I've been thinking about is, this hypothetical, if Carlos Rodon was throwing this well during the rebuild, I don't think Carlos Rodon Bennett is with the White Sox. He probably would have been traded. He would have been traded at best, and he would have tried to find a way out at worst. And I, yeah, I agree with you fully. He, uh, If in 2017 he was dealing as well as he was, he would have been dealt probably for a top prospect who is floundering right now, uh, if I had to guess based on some of the trades they could have made. But, yeah, he – he, he would not have been here uh, if he would have found this four years ago. But if he found this five years ago, would the White Sox have rebuilt? Ooh, Jim, we have had this discussion. I forgot what we what our conclusion was. I still think the offense is missing a lot because in that case you yeah. had you had a sale in Quintana. Like pitching wasn't really the problem. I mean, it came a lot of people complained about John Danks, and and I guess that's what about Danks here. But it's just a uh, uh, you know his inadequacy as the fifth starter. But the fifth starter really wasn't the issue. The flaws in the offense blew that up. But mm-hmm. I think if you have a you know improved fifth starter, maybe you can get to five hundred over five hundred. But do you actually finish it? I don't think so. But, you know, maybe over five hundred is good enough for the White Sox purposes. And, you know, Jerry Reinsdorf, he's a winning team that's not breaking the bank and says like, oh, we'll keep pushing. No reason to, you know, I guess, throw away TV ratings and, and attendance. But yeah, I think yeah, maybe they don't rebuild, but uh, they also, I don't, don't think, get to where they are now. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, sure. then I guess maybe that is a silver lining that for all the struggles that he went through, all the surgeries and the poor performances, that if he is going to discover this type of performance and this type of level, uh, the time is now for the White Sox in a contention year for everything to come together for Carlos Rodon. And the question that I've been pondering after watching his first two starts and really trying to focus on the throwing mechanics, Jim, because, again, that's where the biggest difference is for Carlos Rodon. But overall, what do you think has changed with Rodon in these two starts than what we have seen previously in his career with the White Sox? I went looking back at old video, just especially during, I would say, last year. It was probably the most instructive because that's what <laughs> I guess that's, that's the form the White Sox were looking at and trying to decide whether he is worth keeping around. And it 
didn't look dramatically different like we saw Lucas Giolito, like the arm swing being basically cut off. And the same thing with Reynaldo Lopez this spring and that his arm swing was really shortened. You know, maybe it's partially the camera angles I saw and not seeing like a you know, really good side-by-side -side view. But even like you could tell with the others, Giolito Lopez from uh, the typical center field camera, just exactly what their arms are doing. In this case, you know, the biggest thing was his uh, leg kick was lowered. Like he didn't bring his knee up as high and mm. the arm swing was shortened a little bit. And I think probably just fewer moving parts. And yeah, I'm guessing the other part, you know, <laughs> I think Ethan Katz brought it up and people were making fun of uh, the phrases quad dominant and getting in his toe and a bunch <laughs> of jargon that, uh, you know, he, yeah, maybe in his role as a, a, a fresh pitching coach who has never had the job, he's maybe not used to dumbing it down for certain audiences uh, to be more accessible the way like Cooper would go on 670 to score and talk about it there and, and spar and argue and such. Two different matters of speaking about mechanics. But in this case, I think it's just more of a matter of probably pushing and landing like, uh, you know, I guess how he launched off the mound and then like how he, you know, got the plant foot down and then maybe just uh, quieted that down. Cause I do remember from his draft day profile and in, in early on when he was being assessed was that he would plant the foot and uh, basically be a hard landing. His head would shake a lot. And mm -hmm. I remember that, that, that head wobble being the reason why draft evaluators said that he couldn't, or he would always struggle to command. Uh, well, he'd have to be a power pitcher who'd get by and less than optimal command just because he just rattled himself too much. And so I'm guessing like, if you think about, you know, that he needs to use is like his glutes more and his hamstrings more versus quad. Like if you're just like thinking about it in terms of like, you know, you're, if you just stand up in your, you know, wherever you're watching this and try to do it yourself, you can feel like the force. If you just like stop abruptly, that you know, your stopping comes on your, on your quad. Whereas like trying to, you know, push force through is more about the, the backside of the legs. And that's my guess in terms of a completely amateurish, <laughs> uh, amurate, your approach to assessing biomechanics <laughs> well it, it that's what cats told us right they wanted to make an adjustment with his lower half the core velocity belt and get him to use his legs more uh, again going back to why haven't the white Sox adjusted this the past six years uh, but something that i have noticed and this comes from baseball savant uh, obviously, the fastball velocity in the ninth inning carlos rodon hit 98.8 miles per hour and that is the fastest pitch that he has thrown since 2016. So it's the fastest pitch he's thrown in the last five years. And you posted the graph in your column today, Jim, as far as his average fastball velocity. And it has increased since 2019. Fastball velocity is great, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're generating swings and misses. And this is something that Garrett Crochet is kind of suffering with at the start of this season. But with Rodon, as you can see in this graph, especially his slider and his four-seamer, uh, his slider in 2020 last year had a swing and miss rate of 26.3%. It's up to 56.5% in 2021. And his fastball swing and miss rate, Jim, was 14.3% in 2020. He's up to 35% uh, with his fastball in 2021. So the question I have, is this sustainable as far as the swing and miss rate for Carlos Rodon? Because if it is, the White Sox may have three pitchers in their starting rotation who have a shot of 180-plus strikeouts in 2021 with Lucas Giolito, Lance Lynn, and Carlos Rodon, which, knock on wood, 
Rodon stays healthy for 30 plus starts. I would say in his current form, when he's able to maybe not sit at like 96 to 98, but able to get there at any point, like keep it in his back pocket, I think that is sustainable. You know, maybe not to this degree, uh, maybe as the sample size like, uh, you know, rounds out and faces some better offenses, it comes down a little bit. But the skills that have led to this uh, swing and miss rate, I think, is there. I think, you know, my concern would be like, we saw with Lucas Giolito, his velocity dropping off from his first start to his second and then coming back up. Yeah, I can imagine, given just the uh, amount or, or the lack of wear and tear on his arm uh, the last few years from the lack of action he's seen, that I could see like a dead arm period showing up at some point. Maybe, you know, in, in his starts and the no-hitter, he was starting out in like the low 90s and eventually he ramped it up. But I can see him starting like a an outing in the low 90s and maybe not quite getting above 93 or 94 in a game and maybe that's just something that that plagues him for a start maybe it's something that he has to adjust to after the in-season stamina part kicks in but for the time being what he's showing so far it's like that's that's a legit fastball and seems to have the legit ride and the swings and misses that uh that guys with good ride get and you know like dylan cease is another guy you know talking about velocity not being everything like you can tell when dylan cease's fastball is right Mm-hmm. Not by the radar gun, but just by the swings, by whether it's swings and misses, foul tips, uh, pop-ups. Like that's when they're that's when the fastball's riding. And right now Rodon's getting that action and the hitters are telling us that his fastball is great. So Bennett, it's 14 innings, which is not a lot. We're talking about a small mm-hmm. sample size, but it is an impressive 14 innings, and it's the best that Rodon has looked in years. So are you buying more stock as far as in this performance for Carlos Rodon? And are you believing more that he can sustain this or are you still wait and see mode? I, I think that it's the term I generally use with, with this scene the last couple of years. I am cautiously optimistic. Um, I like okay. what I've seen. <laughs> I feel good with what I've seen, but I can't trust it through 14 innings. I really don't know if I can trust it through a month. Uh, it's going to need to be probably halfway through the season, the season before I really start to believe this is who he's going to be night in, night out. All right. Well, again, Carlos Rodon's next start is going to be against the Boston Red Sox. We'll preview that start later in Sox Machine Live as we preview that upcoming series for the Chicago White Sox as they head east. Uh, but from Carlos Rodon's no-hitter, uh, let's take a look at the series recap for the White Sox against the Cleveland Indians. They split the four-game series. The White Sox won game one, four to three. And a Nick Williams ground out fielder's choice ball ricocheting off Yasmani Grandel's head. Uh, and Nick Magical scores from second. Uh, so they won game one that way. Game two, they they lost in extra innings two to nothing, but a fantastic pitcher's duel between Shane Bieber and Lucas Giolito. And hopefully we get more starts between those two. Throughout the season, uh, game three, the White Sox won eight to nothing. That was Carlos Rodon's no hitter. And game four, they lost four to two. Uh, the first half of the game, they were up one to nothing. And then Jose Ramirez, man, I hope Cleveland trades this guy because he is a pain in the neck uh, to the White Sox. He had a key home run, a two run shot off Lance Lynn in the sixth inning. Uh, then the White Sox got a little bit sloppy uh, and they end up losing four to two. And that's how they are currently six and seven. And Jim, as far as this series, when we talked about it on Monday show, we were, we we're hoping that the White Sox split. We knew that runs would be a premium. When you look at the four games in totality, 
Uh, how do, how well do you think the White Sox played in these four games? And do you feel a little bit more confident after this six-game homestand when you include the Cleveland games as well uh, than we were after their trip to Anaheim and Seattle? I would say, you know, we've seen them look worse against Cleveland. We've seen Cleveland embarrass them more. So in terms of starting the season and, and putting some things behind them, like, you know, uh, putting six runs up on Zach Plesac, who had basically just uh, embarrassed the White Sox, uh, mm-hmm. you know, last year. Like that's encouraging. Um, you know, Shane Bieber looking every bit uh, Cy Young winner. That didn't help, and that's not a lot you can take away from that performance when he's, you know, he had two aces, and, and Bieber was just uh, more efficient because he's able to expand the zone a bit better and lasted nine. And so when you go nine and and throw the stuff Bieber's throwing, like you can't feel too bad about that one. That's when you just. Uh, uh, to use the Robin Ventura phrase, tip your hats, or the one I associate with him about that era. Um, but, yeah, there are just some other performances, too. Like, you know, you had the Nick Williams thing, and, and that was, uh, um, you know, irritating. But then Andrew Vanio goes 0 for 4, two strikeouts, and kind of shows why I'm apprehensive about uh, pursuing this experiment much further. You have Jose Abreu not quite looking right. Uh, Yohan Makata's timing not looking right. You have, like, some of the bullpen showing up. You have, like, Garrett Crochet subject to bad contact. You have Aaron Bummer still looking off. So it's a little bit like whack-a-mole right now and that you have uh, problems being solved and then problems re-arising and sometimes the same problem that you thought was solved coming back, like the defense in the finale. Like there's just a lot uh, a lot going on right now at the White Sox. They're, they're event creators uh, for better or for worse. Like they're, they're not an ordinary kind of bad. They, they do well and they do poorly. <laughs> and uh, uh, it's just about trying to find a balance. And, and I think their record right now, six and seven, is pretty appropriate for how these pros and cons, pluses and minuses have more or less balanced out on the ledger. Yeah, especially when you look at the offensive numbers. Jose Abreu right now is hitting 184 with a 317 on base percentage, slugging 327. He's got two home runs and nine RBIs, but the two home runs were grand slams, so he's only got one other RBI outside of the two grand slams that he's hit. Uh, Yohan Makata is hitting 191 with a 296 on base percentage, slugging 277, so we're not seeing a lot of power from Yohan Makata in the first 13 games of the season. Yasmani Grandal, he's hitting 133 with a 333 on base percentage and slugging 267. I think the White Sox, in a little way, in some ways, are lucky that they are six and seven because if you told me on opening day, Josh, after 13 games, this is what Jose Abreu, Yohan Makata, and Yasmani Grandal are hitting, I would be like, how are they scoring runs? Uh, especially when you add in the fact that Tim Anderson has missed some games because of his hamstring issue. Uh, but the pitching has been really solid, especially on the starting front. And I, I know we're going to keep going back to this, I feel like, all season long. But if they didn't lose those two games in Anaheim, uh, then, you know, they would be, what, eight and five? And we're, we'll be having a different conversation in the sense of the White Sox, eight and five, and these three hitters are not performing well. But instead, they are six and seven, and these three guys are not hitting well, and they really need to start going uh, because this is the middle of your order for the White Sox lineup. Um, I don't want to get too much into the White Sox offense because hopefully facing Boston pitching, they start picking it up. But, Bennett, I want to shift the conversation to Lance Lynn. His three starts have been excellent. Uh, there was – I'm not going to say controversy, but there's, there's multiple camps when it came to the Lance Lynn trade. 
I felt like it was necessary to lose somebody like Dane Dunning and Dunning has looked pretty good for the Texas Rangers uh, to start the season. And it is one of those moves where you sacrifice six years of control for a pitcher who will become a free agent after this year. But after the first three starts of watching Lance Lynn, uh, is this everything that you are hoping for the White Sox would be receiving uh, in return for giving up one of their top pitching prospects and Dane Dunning for the next six years? Yeah, I, I was in a similar camp to you. I, I love Dane Dunning. I've been catching as much of his starts as I can uh, from what he started. But Lance Lynn is the kind of pitcher that would put – if he pitched like he has been pitching, he was going to put you over the top or your rotation over the top. And years of control are very nice and they're very good. But the number one thing for this rotation was getting another top arm. And that's what they were hoping to get from Lance Lynn. And that's what Lance Lynn has delivered so far. So I'm impressed. I'm a little bit, and I'm going to keep saying I'm worried about in the, by the middle of the season, by the the end of the season, because Lynn had a very good six or seven weeks last year and then really fell apart. And he's a year Mm -hmm. older and theoretically he didn't throw a full year. So his arm maybe got a little bit more rest, but I, I hope that it won't be an issue, but I've been very impressed through the first three starts. How about you, Jim? As far as after the first three starts, is this everything that the White Sox could possibly want in this exchange? Right now, yeah, especially with Dallas Keuchel uh, struggling, you know, struggling to be the workhorse that he used to be. Uh, that's why I thought it was important for, uh, you know, Dunning would have been nice for this rotation, but I don't think he would have addressed the biggest thing, which is innings, which is reliable innings, the ability to wear it once in a while or tough through like a bad first couple of innings and try to get through five or six on a hundred, 110 pitches. Like Dunning isn't that guy yet. It wouldn't be smart just based on where he is in his career and his workload to do that. So it's, uh, it solved the problem. Like that's, I guess that's the way I put it. Like it solved the biggest problem. It's not the, the best exchange in terms of value, especially when it comes to what the white Sox are going to need a year from now. And they could still use a guy like Lance Lynn a year from now, and maybe they'll extend him. And I would not be opposed to discussing that uh, because I think his profile will age well, especially if you're able to reduce the demands on him. Like eventually he's number two now, but maybe, you know, by the third year of a contract, you're looking at him as number three, number four. Uh, like he's got that Bartolo Cologne mix of fastballs <laughs> that I think ages really well uh, and, and other things too, but <laughs> it's a, uh, uh it's it's a profile I like. And in you know, the late season struggles that he had last year were partially true, but also like just Houston, whatever reason, kicked the crap out of him. And I think like if you remove his Houston numbers from the equation, even his finish was more or less fine and his home run problem stemmed from what the Astros did to him. So whether that's just uh the way his stamina, like in season wear and tear lined up against the Astros, or whether they just had the book on him whether they had other things on them, given the Astros, hard to say, but uh, that's what, that's one reason why I'm inclined to like, it's already a small sample. And then the way that small sample is divided makes me think like it's at least the Astros for the time being are they're in the central time zone, but they're not in the AL central just yet. Oh, <laughs> do you think they'll ever be in the American league central? I don't think so, but like maybe if Portland shows up or another West coast team, you never uh, know. Good point. Good point. Well, I, It's been a fantastic start. I don't think Lance Lynn is going to strike out 10 plus and not walk anybody, Uh, but this is a great first impression uh, for Lance Lynn and and guaranteed rate field, 11 strikeouts, no walks, followed up with 10 strikeouts and no walks. This has been a really strong start. And I'm with you, Jim. 
I know we, as White Sox fans, we would love Lucas Giolito to be tied up. But the more I watch him pitch, and we had that conversation with Rick Giolito on our friend show from the 108 uh, when they had their live event, and they brought in Rick, uh, that Lucas Giolito understands his value. And man, Jim, that that's a $200 million pitcher right there in Lucas Giolito. So if the White Sox are going to sign a starting pitcher right now in the rotation to a contract extension, I, I'm with you. I think it does make sense to find a deal with Lance Lynn. Is it rare for the White Sox, though, to come to an agreement on a multi-year contract extension during the season? Well, I the can't one think I- of one. Well, I think with uh, pitchers like Jake Peavy was one, I believe. Oh, okay. Um, and then uh, if I remember the timing on that one, right, because that came out of nowhere. I think when he was going to be a trade candidate, all of a sudden he's extended. Another one was Freddie Garcia, but Freddie Garcia had the family ties to Ozzy Guillen, which I think made it a slightly different conversation. But they, you know, <laughs> but they traded a similar situation in which they traded like a lot of years in a lot of team control for a team that Freddie Garcia wasn't going to put over the top that year. But then once they signed him to extension, it made a lot more sense. And then given how well Garcia pitched for the Sox and then what he brought back in the trade to Philadelphia, like that, that worked out fine once the extension was in. And, you know, Miguel Olivo and, and Jeremy Reed and Mike Morris really didn't do much with the Mariners. So that was, yeah, that was a great trade. But it just took that, it took that extension in the middle of the season to really make it one. And I think Lynn, you know, it's, He's new to the White Sox. He's new to you know the situation. You know, he, he knows Tony LaRusso a little bit, so there's that connection. But I imagine mm-hmm. probably want a couple months just to feel it out, feel like whether this is a, a place he wants to stay or whether uh, you know it's worth settling for maybe a little bit less now versus uh, you know getting max value and a place he might like more. So I imagine it would probably take till May or June or something like that as, as the trade deadline approaches and the White Sox figure out what they're going to need to keep for next year. Well, going from Lance Lynn, it's great to see Tim Anderson back in the lineup for the Chicago White Sox at, at the leadoff spot. He didn't waste any time in game four, which was Jackie Robinson day. It is obviously very important to Tim Anderson. He often performs well on Jackie Robinson day. And the first pitch that he sees, he singles right up the middle. And it's great to have him back into the lineup and a stabilizing force on the top of the lineup. But the question that I have for you, Jim, is that now with Tim Anderson back, we, we've seen Adam Eaton a, a lot as the leadoff hitter for the White Sox with Anderson out. We saw Luis Robert batting second uh, in this game. Anderson led off, Eaton bat second, Luis Robert dropped in the lineup. How would you configure the lineup heading into Boston now that Tim Anderson is available? But we know that Abreu, Mikata, and Grandal are really struggling at the moment. Well, uh, well, first I want to correct myself because Jake Peavy was in October. It was after okay. the season, but before the, it was surprising because it was right before free agency and, and that happened. As Larry brought up in the comments of Mark Burley, he was the one who signed the July extension um, when it looked like he could have been dealt. So that's, I was conflating the two situations. So thank you, Larry. To, yeah. Just wanted to correct the record there. Um, when it comes to Tim Anderson, uh, I like him at the top of the order, especially like, you know, yeah, the, as we saw, like first pitch single, like first pitch mm-hmm. uh, swings, first pitch impact. He looked no worse for uh, the time off. So that's great to see. And, you know, it's, it's nice to have the bat to ball abilities after watching, you know, Garcia and to a lesser degree, Danny Mendick taking his place. Like it's nice to have him back. So even though he isn't the typical leadoff hitter, 
it's kind of like Garcia, Larry Garcia at the height of his powers. Like when he's putting the bat on the ball, he makes things happen. There's enough action at the top of the order to where you don't feel like, uh, you know, a, an average or slightly below average OBP just because things are happening when he's there and it's mm-hmm. easier to absorb. Garcia scored a ton of runs despite his OBP. And I think there's something to that uh, working as long as you have the right guys hitting behind you. So, you know, that brings up that situation. And right now, Adam Eaton, more or less fine. <laughs> like uh, I thought we'd be complaining about him a lot more given his performance last year, given his reputation as a slow starter, given his defensive issues, but he's, he looks good. He looks more or less like the guy the White Sox traded away, maybe a little bit less dynamic, you know, like the speed isn't quite there, but everything else, his ability to, uh, you know, move around a batter's box, that's there. So until like Moncada proves like his timing's back and, uh, you know, like maybe like an Andrew Vaughn improves or Nick, Nick Madrigal starts to, and Madrigal's improving too, but I think right now he's more or less fine at the bottom of the order. I think Eaton's probably the guy you want in front of the heart of the lineup to get on base if Anderson can't. Then Luis Robert too. I'm surprised by the quality, pleasantly surprised by the quality of his plate appearances. So in the matchups, right, especially against lefty, he's fine there too. Uh, he doesn't look completely, he's had some ugly at bats here and there, but not the uh, silver sombreros where he sees like 11 pitches. Like that's, that's I think uh, the, the kind of at bat he had last year that, he's managed to limit. Like when he has one at bat at bat, he seems to carry it into the next one and realize like, okay, they're going to attack me with sliders. I need to make them show that uh, I understand what I'm doing here. And he's showing that right now. And that's nice. Yeah. Luis Robert batting 269 with a 328 on base percentage slugging 462. If his season ended with those numbers, I think White Sox fans would be really happy with that type of offensive production from Luis Robert. And as you mentioned, Jim, Adam Eden, the dead cat bounce is in effect right now. Hopefully it continues to go up. Uh, he's batting 261 with a 370 on base percentage, slugging 457. He is tied with Yermer Mercedes with the most home runs on the White Sox right now uh, with three. That's exactly what we thought at the beginning of the season that Adam Eden and Yermer Mercedes would be tied for the home run lead. Uh, but Bennett, again, as I mentioned, I don't think the White Sox are going to move Jose Breu out of the number three spot. But you do have a lot of White Sox fans, especially on social media, wondering, should Larusa move Yohan Makata out of the cleanup spot and back to the number two spot? Because maybe with it being more comfortable in that spot where he batted a lot last year, that he'll get back into rhythm, he'll get into a groove, and his numbers would start getting better, uh, maybe to the expectations that we had before the season. How do how how do you feel about the White Sox current lineup, uh, especially now that Tim Anderson's back? And would you do any shuffling? I yeah, I before the year I wanted Moncada hitting fourth. That was I think that's the spot he's going to continue to grow into. I know he's he's started slow. As we said, three quarters of the offense has started slow. Uh, mm-hmm. But that for me, that's where I want him every day. For the two spot, I'm happy with Eaton right now. I think he's, as long as he's playing at the level he's playing, he can stay there. My goal looking to September is by September, if Luis Robert really has figured it out, I want him hitting second every day. If he's taken that next step, I want him to be the number two. And you can shift Eaton down. You add a little bit. He doesn't have the speed he had, but he still has some speed. Keep that speed near the bottom of the, uh, the lineup while giving uh, Robert more at-bats and giving him that spot at number two. And then, yeah, three, four, five, don't move. You can put your mean in at five, I guess. You can shift him in there. But 
definitely keeping Abreu at three and, and Moncada at four. I kind of like the idea of moving Mercedes to the number two spot, especially if there's going to be a day off for Adam Eaton. Uh, to have Anderson and Mercedes, I mean, a batting champion and then someone that's hitting 460, that should give more opportunities for Jose Abreu to drive in runs, right? Because we're all thinking that Mercedes is going to continue as a 476 batting average. Uh, hopefully, uh, that would be fantastic. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, we'll see on how if Larusa makes any shuffling as far as in the lineup for this upcoming series against the Boston against the Boston Red Sox. Listen, you hear that? That's the sound of nothing, and nothing is what you'll pay for medium fries when you buy any Mickey D's new crispy chicken sandwich. It's crispy, juicy, tender, all white meat chicken with crinkle cut pickles on a buttery potato bun. Mmm. Buy one, and we'll hook you up with a free medium fries. That's like zero zilt zip. So try any Mickey D's new crispy chicken sandwich and get a medium fries for nothing. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Prices and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer or combo meal. When your entire life is online, you need more than just speed from your internet. Xfinity gives you reliable in-home Wi-Fi coverage, plus protection from Wi-Fi network threats. Check out our amazing offers on Xfinity Internet. You'll get fast speed and Wi-Fi coverage you can count on. Plus, get advanced security free with the XFi Gateway, so you can keep the connected devices in your home protected from network threats. Just log in and activate through the Xfinity app. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. And that's where we're going to go next in Sox Machine Live as we preview the upcoming series between the Chicago White Sox and the Boston Red Sox, the bottle, the battle of the Sox. Uh, this is a unique four-game series. It goes Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday as the White Sox and Red Sox will be playing on Patriots Day. And the Boston Red Sox, so hot right now. They ended up losing the final game against the Minnesota Twins, but they did a solid for the White Sox, winning three out of four in Minneapolis. The Boston Red Sox, after being swept at home, the opening series against the Baltimore Orioles, and everybody was up in arms wondering, oh, man, is this a terrible Boston team? Uh, they end up winning nine straight games. Uh, they are currently nine and four. Uh, offensively, very strong. They have uh, averaging 5.76 runs per game, and they are only allowing four runs per game as well on the run prevention side. Uh, moving to who are the hottest hitters in the last seven games for the White Sox? Rafael Devers is hitting 320 with a 370 on base percentage. He's slugging 840. Uh, Alex Verdugo is very strong to start this season. Uh, he had a very strong 2020 as well. And Xander Bogarts uh, hasn't hit a home run in the last seven days, but that is a very impressive slash line. So again, the Boston Red Sox have been hitting very well as a team. And again, when I looked at the calendar, Jim, and after Baltimore swept Boston, I thought, you know what? This should be a pretty easy series for the White Sox as they head to Boston. And now I'm not so confident. How are you feeling right now as the White Sox head to Boston? The Red Sox have talent. And, and you know, well, when we're talking about like top shortstops uh, and Tim Anderson being, you know, where does he rank in American League shortstops? I was, uh, you know, surprised that he finished outside, I think it was top, outside the top 10 in MLB network. And then mm-hmm. when I was looking through the, the list of players who are above him, I looked at Xander Bogarts and it's like Xander Bogarts might be the rare Red Sox player who's underrated. You know, like even, you know, with all the press that, you know, the Red Sox get all the national TV appearances, all the uh, national 
press they get for the moves they make and the moves they don't make and their cost cutting and, and the angst of very visible Red Sox fans. It's like, we don't hear a lot about Bogarts. Uh, and Good point. it's uh, just, I'm interested to watch him play just because uh, I don't feel like I've been watching him closely enough. Like when they had Mookie Betts and uh, Dustin Pedroia and they had you know, just the Jackie Bradley Jr. They had a bunch of guys um, who got to know, got, you know, all-star appearances, got big contracts, were the face of the team. It's like uh, now that they're out of the way, I'm really interested to see what he looks like and, and, and maybe just him taking a starting role because Devers is good. J.D. Martinez has been great and, and looks mm-hmm. like he's, he's got life in his bat. But Bogart seems like the guy who's kind of slept on, uh, just a really well-rounded player, great defender, great on-base guy, has some power. You know, is not hitting for power right now, but he's doing everything else. So that's the guy I'm watching right now because I think that's the – that's, you know, maybe the, the guy who makes their lineup – you know, I guess more than half full. And then mm-hmm. once you have like five good hitters, you know, it's like the, you know, Cleveland, but a bit better than Cleveland's been. Like when you have like five hitters who get on base and hit for power, uh, that's, you can only do so much with that. You only get like one easy inning uh, every so often. And a guy like Dylan Cease, who looks like he's going to be ready to go, he'll be tested. Yeah, and speaking of Dylan Cease, great segue, Jim. Uh, looking at the primal pitchers for the first two games of this series, it's Nick Pavetta for the Boston Red Sox against Dylan Cease. Cease had – they were concerned that he may have had COVID symptoms, so they played it cautiously with Dylan Cease. Uh, but everything is checked out. He has tested negative. He has boarded the plane as far as leaving from Chicago to Boston. Uh, he will be making the start on Friday, April 16th. Again, that's a 6, 10 p.m. Central Time start. On Saturday, Dallas Keuchel will be making the start for the White Sox. It's to be determined for the Boston Red Sox, again, uh, with what happened with the protests in Minneapolis causing a uh, postponement as far as that game and turning into a doubleheader the following day. Boston's rotation is a little out of sorts at the moment, so we'll see what their last-minute decision will be for that Saturday contest and looking ahead to the Sunday and Monday matchup. So the Sunday game is a 12, 10 PM central time start. It's Martin Perez against Lucas Giolito. I feel pretty confident in this as the white Sox restart uh, or try to restart their winning streak against left-handed starters. Uh, and then on Monday morning, it is Carlos Rodon coming off of his no hitter performance. And he'll be going up against Nathan Evaldi. And that is going to be Patriots Day. And Bennett, I I think this would be a good opportunity, as you know about Patriots Day. And White Sox fans are going to be asking on Sunday, Jim, I feel it in my bones. Someone's going to have a P.O. Sox question for us on why in the world are the White Sox playing at 10 o'clock in the morning on Monday? Uh, But go ahead and drop the truth on us, Bennett. What's going on that Monday in Boston? Uh, so the first thing that happens uh, as someone who went to, to college in Massachusetts is a lot of college kids are going to be drinking all day. Um, it's a it's a holiday in Massachusetts in a few other states as well, but it's it's a day off of school. Basically, it's the Boston Marathon. And then what they used to do is they used I think the game used to start at 1130 Eastern or as the marathon was set up. It was set up so that the they would cross the finish line at the marathon around the same time the game was starting. They've shifted it a little bit. Now they kind of finish at the midway point of the game, but it's basically, it, it's to honor the, the first battles of the revolutionary war of Lexington, the battles of Lexington conquered. So it's in, I think Massachusetts, Connecticut, possibly Maine, a couple other random, I think North Dakota celebrates it for some reason, 
But yeah. basically, they they always have the uh, that day is always considered a holiday, and uh, the Red Sox always play an early game. They've been at home, I think, since the mid fifties. They've been home every year on Patriots Day, and they always play. Again, it used to be a little bit earlier. Uh, they shifted it a, a slightly later on the East Coast for um, for I think especially with the mar- with no marathon this year, as as Paul said, uh, that that's a little bit less important. Did when you were in upstate New York, Jim? Did they celebrate Patriots Day? They did not. Hmm. <laughs> so yeah, I think it's yeah. I think it's Massachusetts, Connecticut, Maine. Those might be the only three, even in New England. Hmm. And like that matters up there. Yeah, I'm wondering if they're going to be wearing their uh, city edition uniforms, the yellow so, and baby blue. So they're going to wear those Saturday and Sunday. They have a specific jersey they always wear. That's it's white with red script that says Boston across the front. Oh, okay. They, they only break those out on Patriots Day. Are you ready for the Boston Red Sox, Jim, to wear yellow and light blue? No. Uh, I'm looking up Wikipedia says observed in Massachusetts, Maine, Connecticut. So you had those Wisconsin, North Dakota, and encouraged in Florida. I don't know what that means. (laughs) If it's not a day off, is it really celebrated at that point? I don't know. It's just like, are you supposed to call somebody? Like, it'd be nice if you you observe this. Like, I don't call your mother, wish her a happy uh, Patriots Day. (laughs) I didn't even know Wisconsin celebrated. Honestly, I lived in Wisconsin for a big part of my life and never knew that. So something that you always learn, but that's why the white Sox are playing at 10 o'clock in the morning on Monday uh, for those already wondering, but looking at this series, Jim, again, for what is now going to be tough games because the Boston Red Sox are playing really good baseball at the moment. After this series in Boston, they go to Cleveland for a two-game series, and then they'll have the day off next Thursday before having a homestand that will feature games against the Texas Rangers and the Detroit Tigers. There, I think the White Sox can pile up some wins, but before they get there, they got to get through these six games. And with this six-game road trip, knowing that the 2021 White Sox, which we expected them to be in contention to win the division and make the postseason this year, uh, they're one game below 500, but now knowing on how well Boston is playing and how tough it always is for the White Sox to win in Cleveland, is a three and three road trip acceptable for this White Sox team? I think more or less. I think right now they're still treading water a little bit when it comes to getting you know their their offense in gear and getting their defense in gear. Having Tim Anderson back helps, so that raises the bar a little bit. That deepens the lineup. So I think they have it in them to have a winning record, but it's it's tough uh, just the way they're playing right now and how many things have to click in order to feel good about it. I would take – it depends on the shape of the 3-3. Three three. I will say, like, it would be – you know, I, if they have, like, a slugfest, like, like say if they lose a game 12-10, to 10, if Cease gets roughed up, you know, coming off an illness, that's understandable. If uh, But, you know, I would say if Cease gets roughed up, given his state this week, although if Carlos Herdon is precedent – I would expect, you know, more history on the way. Maybe everybody needs to get sick, like get scratched for, for their starts just be, to uh, to make it easier. But uh, like if Cease gets roughed up, that's understandable. But if Dallas Keuchel has another rough start, that's a little bit worrisome. If the defense continues to wobble or, or collapse in some innings, that's worrisome. So I think there are ways they can lose. You know, they can go three and three that make you feel okay and make you feel like, okay, that's just 
a good team with a good offense have, uh, against a bad day of pitching. But I think there are uh, some through lines in this White Sox season so far that if they carry into another week, like Jose Abreu uh, looking rough, Yohan Makata mm-hmm. not having timing, like that's that's the kind of stuff where it's like that's that that starts having a cumulative effect to where it's a little bit uh, too persistent to just brush off as like a oh, tough week, get them next week. How do you feel, Bennett? If I told you that if the White Sox split these six games and for that homestand when the Texas Rangers come in, that they are nine and ten as we enter the final week of April, are you are you good with that? Is that acceptable knowing and how this season has started? I mean, like no. If you told me a month ago like they, they'd start nine and ten, I, I don't think I'd be very happy, even looking at who it was and who they'd have to go up against and, and where those teams would be. But yeah, I think I think over 500 is preferable. But if they finish three and three, I think that would be that would be you can't really get angry at that kind of that kind of road trip. And the last thing about this series, Jim, we have seen inexperienced left fielders <laughs> get owned, <laughs> get owned <laughs> by the Green Monster. And uh, Kevin is asking over under on the number of errors that Andrew Vaughn has with the Green monster uh i honestly i i was a bit surprised at dfa nick williams because i felt like oh nick williams is totally starting the friday game an experienced left fielder you can't throw andrew vaughn out there but larusa wasn't around to see the nikki delmonico fiasco uh so i andrew vaughn made a nice play uh, in left field the last couple of days uh, to help with Carlos Rodon's no-hitter, and he robbed an extra base hit at the wall, a uh, catch that I don't think Aloy Jimenez would have made. Uh, so what, where's your confidence level for Andrew Vaughn playing in the first time at Fenway? Well, I, I think in terms of like errors, errors, like errors on the scoreboard, I would say 0.5, like misplays that maybe just give up an extra base but don't count just because he didn't read the camera right. I would say maybe push it up to uh, – one to two, depending on how many games he plays. I th- I can see Larusa being protective because I think, you know, Vaughn had a decent game against uh, Zach Plesek, which everybody basically did. Um, but then the next time around looked very much like an overmatched rookie a little bit. So I think he's still going to be protective and might only get a couple starts. One thing about Vaughn though is he plays so deep that like at Fenway, I don't know where you go. <laughs> I feel like warning the track. He plays <laughs> well, like the depth he plays at, at the cell would be in the scoreboard. <laughs> like you have to open the door to uh to, to charge uh to charge a blooper so it's uh, uh it, i can see it being like he'll just handle everything in front of him and just anything that looks over his head he just starts running forward to play the carom and he'll be okay uh, i don't think he takes too many chances so i could see him i, I think 0. 0.5 i think he has one in him but i think uh he's not as athletic as delmonico and thus he won't be like as tempted to get adventurous and test his limitations. And <laughs> I think it'll be more, uh, you know, maybe just uh, one play that's a little bit too conservative. Well, this upcoming weekend on Saturday, we will be having a special Sox Machine Live as we'll be joined by our friends from the 108. Uh, we're going to be doing another pregame show. We did it for the home opener. Uh, many of you watched uh, as far as that live stream. So we decided we're going to do it again. Uh, and Terezi and Beef Loaf and My Sox Summer will be joining us to preview that upcoming game. So we'll recap what happens on Friday and then get everyone prepared for the Saturday 
afternoon tilt. That live show is going to be starting at 2 o'clock p.m. Central Time as the White Sox and Red Sox first pitch is going to be at 3 o'clock. And for those that are watching live stream right now, you can go over to the From the 108 YouTube page at youtube.com slash from the 108. They're going to be starting their live show at 8.30. It's like cable television, but not really. But we're trying to line it up as far as in the YouTube. So if you want more White Sox content and you want to laugh your butt off, uh, after this, go over to the From the 108 YouTube channel and you can watch those guys live. Uh, I got to experience a no-hitter with them, so they have good stories that they can share for, from being in the ballpark uh, for Carlos Rodon's no-hitter. And uh, I'm really looking forward to that Saturday show. But that will do it for this episode of Sox Machine Live. Thank you to everyone uh, that watched in the live stream at youtube.com slash Machine, And thank you to Bennett. Welcome to the team. I'm excited for everyone to hear you with the White Sox wake-up calls starting next week. You're a great addition and uh, also helping us out with Sox Machine Live. So thank you so much, Bennett. Yes, welcome. Thank you, guys. Seriously. So it's my pleasure. And as far as with Sox Machine Live, it is a production of SoxMachine.com. You can follow us on Twitter. We are at Sox Machine. Again, subscribe to your YouTube page. We are close to 250 subscribers last time I checked. Uh, So if we can get past 250, that would be great. You can subscribe to us at YouTube.com slash Sox Machine. And in case if you ever miss a live stream, no worries. We always take the audio files and upload it into the podcast feed as well. So if you're in a car ride or you're starting to commute back to work and you want the audio version, the audio version is for you with our podcast feed. And you can subscribe to the Sox Machine podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. If you enjoy our work and want more, you can always get more at patreon.com slash Machine, uh, where our Patreon supporters get exclusive content. They also get an ad-free version of the podcast and the website and first crack at Sox Machine swag. So again, if you're interested, we have plans at $2, $3, $5, and $10 a month. You can sign up at patreon.com slash Machine. That will do it for this episode of Sox Machine Live. Thank you so much for watching and listening. Alongside Jim Margulis and Bennett Carroll, I'm Josh Nelson. Have a good night. Spring is calling and Target's ready with deals for your outdoor space. Grab miracle Grow Potting Mix on sale at two for $8. Plus get 20% off planters and more. Find spring's best outdoor buys at Target, where low prices and great deals make it easy to save. Restrictions apply. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.